You're listening to the Bottom Line Podcast, where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Sean and Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today at the Bottom Line Podcast. Thank you so much. You're both health professionals. Sean, you're a GP and Michelle, you were training to be a paediatric surgical registrar, but since Sean's diagnosis, you are now training to be a GP. Your lived experience provides us with such a unique perspective as patient, carer and health care professionals. We're going to do two parts to this. So in part one of the podcast, I want to focus on your lived experience as a newly diagnosed metastatic bowel cancer patient, Sean. And in part two, we'll then explore the health professional aspect. Sean, can I ask you, what symptoms did you experience and the duration of those symptoms and what ultimately got you to go and have them investigated? So I was fairly asymptomatic until very late in the piece. Um, I was diagnosed late stage, so I'd obviously had the cancer for a long time. Anyone who understands about bowel cancer knows it's a very slow-growing disease. Um, uh, and, um, And so because my disease was quite advanced, I obviously had them for a long time. My symptoms probably were only there for about three months before I was diagnosed. Um, and the symptoms that I had was crampy, intermittent tummy pain, um, and some, um, um, and, and which was basically waking up at night um, and some difficulty passing stool. Um, and then about two weeks before I was diagnosed, I started to get bloody stools. So I had very little lead-in time. Um, so what prompted me basically to go get investigated was the fact that I had you know, crampy tummy pain and blood in my poo. Um, so at that point in time, I had a bit of mucus. So it's a bit, you know, a bit icky to talk about, but um, it's really important we do talk about these things. We must talk about these things, mustn't we? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I went and I went and had a um, basically had a chat to my GP, and um, and, and they um, very wisely organised an urgent colonoscopy for me. At no stage prior to that, you you didn't think that it could be bowel cancer. No. Um, and even leading into getting the colonoscopy, I didn't really think too much about it. I thought perhaps that because my symptoms were very much related to doing a poo and I had bloody mucus and poos, that it was probably going to be something like ulcerative colitis or some other condition because, you know, putting my medical hat on, I thought, you know, that's probably what it's going to be. I thought, oh, no, this is a pain in the butt. I'm going to have to, you know, to take medication for the rest of my life. But it would have been much better if it was just ulcerative colitis. <laughs> yes, in hindsight, isn't it a wonderful thing? Yeah. Did you face any barriers or challenges in having your symptoms further investigated, um, especially because you were young? How old were you? Um, so I was 35 when I was diagnosed. Um, and, um, and yes, that is very, you know, fairly young. I've heard of um, people as young as 11 being diagnosed with late-stage bowel cancer, so it does affect all age groups. But um, um, I personally was lucky not to experience any barriers. Um, I went in on a Monday to see my GP and I had my colonoscopy on a Friday. Um, I think part of that is that um, I have private health insurance um, and so I was able to access the colonoscopy quickly. Um, sadly, for a lot of people who don't have private health insurance, the public health lists blow out tremendously um, and even getting urgent scopes can take you know months and months. Um, it's unacceptable um, and definitely one of the things we need to look at is funding more colonoscopy spots, um, I feel, um, so that people can get access to the investigation that will diagnose and or cure them. Michelle, as a loved one, and given Sean's experience, what advice do you have for other young Australians who may be experiencing bowel cancer symptoms? The number one thing will be go to your GP. Well, I think because 
foul is a dirty, dirty topic in inverted commas. People find it a very embarrassing topic to even broach their GPs. And I think young people need to feel empowered that they need to speak up for themselves and take their symptoms seriously, go to their GP, um, maybe armed with some information from this podcast or from Bowel Cancer Australia and let their GPs know that this is serious and that they're really concerned about it and ultimately walk out of the office with the with a referral for colonoscopy. Um, I would also advise people that in cases like this, if you're really concerned, sometimes going private and funding it to get it done may be an option to sort of settle your mind and find out ultimately what it is. An early diagnosis means a cure and you get to live a life and earn that money back. But if you get a late diagnosis because you're afraid of the financial costs, you know, the consequences can mean a life loss, really. So finally, you got your colonoscopy, Sean. You found cancer was present. Can you talk us through what happened when you woke up from your colonoscopy? Because I think some people don't, they're a little bit scared of a colonoscopy and there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, so the um, colonoscopy process was, a, it's, you know, it's, it's not pleasant. Um, my number one tip is um, buy some wet wipes um, for the bowel prep phase. Um, <laughs> and lanolin. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you get, you get through that unpleasant part of the process. Um, and the actual, the, on the day itself, apart from the paper underpants, it's really a very straightforward procedure. You go to sleep for about five minutes, ten minutes, and um, and then wake up again, um, usually with a recovery nurse. Um, in my situation, the um, recovery nurse said, oh, you're going to need to wait around and see the doctor. Um, and so I sat there and just chilled out and waited for the doctor to come. I wasn't too nervous. Um, but uh, when the doctor did come, um, uh, they were... Um, fairly brief um, and made an appointment for them to see them in the clinic um, the next day to urgently discuss it. But they did let me know that they found a large cancer that was completely obstructing my sigmoid and they, which is my sigmoid colon, and they hadn't been able to get the littlest scope to have a paediatric or a baby scope up past it. Um, so I knew it was pretty serious at that point. And um, being um, from a, a medical background, I sort of understood the, the consequences of that. So pretty much straight away, I, I was sort of kind of across the board of, of where, where it was at. Um, the colonoscopist um, had advised me that they tattooed the area um, and that, so that they could um, have a look when they did my operation and see how far the extent of the cancer was. Um, and I was really um, lucky in some respects that my cancer was just above the pelvis, so in the sigmoid colon, um, uh, which, has, um, which has meant that um, it, it's uh, not available for radiotherapy. Um, but it also means that it's a little bit, bit higher up. So surgical options down the line might be a bit easier for me. What went through your mind at this time? I was a little bit challenging. I guess it's like a sliding doors moment where your whole life changes. Mm. Um, luckily, um, so Michelle was living in New Zealand at the time um, and um, she happened to be over on a holiday. Um, so I had some support there. Um, she came and picked me up from the colonoscopy and we um, sort of told her the diagnosis. Um, I remember you just, I remember walking into the waiting room to pick him up and I said, how did it go? What did they find? And he just gave me a picture and I just had a moment where I knew what I was looking at. Um, being previously trained in surgery, I myself have, you know, um, attended many colonoscopies and I knew what I was looking at and it was devastating. And I, I remember immediately going outside and I called my boss up and said, I'm not coming back to work because I knew what it was. 
at that point, obviously, as doctors, you're both trained, you deliver information that sometimes is not pleasant for people. How do you think you kicked in and reacted to that versus, say, what an ordinary person would do? Um, I think probably um, the fact that, you know, we have a familiarity with the hospital system um, and we have a familiarity with healthcare in general, um, I sort of immediately knew the whole process from beginning to end. Um, and so for me, it's not none of it's really particularly surprising. What was a little bit difficult was initially switching into the patient mode um, and particularly talking with doctors. I think a lot of doctors assume that you know more than you do. Um, and um, and so particularly for us medicos, it's a matter of actually just asking people to say, you know, just, just talk to me like you would any other patient. Please just explain it in lay terms because sometimes it's important to have, you know, the information conveyed simply and clearly. Um, but, but in terms of, um, of what went through my mind, um, it, it, was, um, it, it was fairly fairly brief and direct sort of um, understanding of where we were. So for me, I didn't, it didn't take me long to sort of adjust to it, actually, surprisingly. I was probably pretty much adjusted by the next day. I, um, I responded really quickly. So for a lot of people, that surprised a lot of people um, <laughs> that, that I was just so quick at, at switching it out. But I'm very zen about things. Yes, at um, baseline, he's a very zen kind of guy. And for him, it for I, I think for both of us, it was more, it is what it is. There's no point fighting or question it or saying, what could I have done differently? Because being so young, I think there's a level of understanding that we give to the disease that it happens. I've seen it before. You've seen it before. You just didn't think it was going to happen to you. But when, when it happens... You kind of go, okay, so now we take each step by step. Nothing is ever guaranteed, but we're, we're going to do our best. And look at solutions focused and look forward. That's a very good tip for anyone, I would imagine. It's, it's, it's a very natural thing to go what if um, and reflect, but um, I agree with you. It's that let's draw a line in the sand and now what can we do to move forward? Do you think your Zen-like attitude um, has helped you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, for me, anxiety is barely a thing. Um, I've been extremely unwell in the last couple of months. Um, I was, uh, you know, I've been with palliative care doctors twice um, and, and sort of um, uh, built back up from the brink from that um, and, you know, had to you know, do a whole lot of physiotherapy and things to get walking again. Um, so I've done that twice now. And, um, yeah, for me, uh, being having a, um, a meditative approach and just accepting how things are is very, very important. Um, uh, avoiding anxiety, I think, is extremely important um, and a really big part of that, I think, is, is having the capacity to just, is, you know, um, radical acceptance um, and, and accepting that this is, the, this is what the current present holds for me now. Um, I have dreams and aspirations about the future, but let's just deal with the present and not get too far ahead of yourself. Um, I think that's a really important um, way of just dealing with the day-to-day -day. Um, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. If you accept where you are, it's easier to work out what your next step is. If, you're, if it's difficult to accept where you are, you can, um, you can find yourself unsatisfied with your progress. Um, I've certainly felt frustrated, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I feel emotions, um, but the capacity to um, reflect on them and move through them quickly, I think, is something that having a meditative approach really helps. Um, so it's not that you don't feel things, it's the capacity to be able to accept, process, synthesise and move through. Yeah. That's such brilliant advice um, and have from someone who's been through that. When were you informed that it was stage four? Um, so I had a CT scan 
Tuesday. Um, Tuesday, so four days, five days after I had my um, colonoscopy. Um, and um, and then I had an appointment with the doctor that afternoon. Well, maybe the next morning, I can't it was remember. It a gastroenterologist. Yeah, and, um, and, and he informed me that it was a, that it had spread to my liver and into my lymph nodes. Um, um, and uh, he had me referred off to a surgeon and an oncologist pretty quickly. And did they take you through your treatment options, Sean, then, or was it prior? So they they, rec they suggested that I'd probably have a, a operation pretty quickly, um, and and um, and certainly by the end of the week I was in theatre getting operated. Um, it was a different operation probably than what the gastroenterologist thought. So my cancer had spread in such a way that um, it made it very difficult to take the tumour out. Um, it had spread a long way back in towards my um, in towards my sacrum, um, which is the big bone in the back of your pelvis um, that looks like a shield. Um, and then from there, it had spread up along the spinal cord, not in the spinal cord, but next to the spinal cord through the lymph nodes. Um, and as a result, um, after some discussion with a few different teams um, down in Melbourne and up in Brisbane, um, we decided on a consensus viewpoint from having a few different opinions that doing a major operation was not actually going to be beneficial to my life um, or to my long-term um, prognosis. Um, and so I simply had an ileostomy put in um, because my tumour was almost completely blocking my um, bowel. I was actually in bowel obstruction, large bowel obstruction. And, um, and so they just put in ileostomy and I've had no further surgery to date um, because it's been felt that removing the tumour in my liver or removing the tumour in my bowel, um, the, the tumours that are adjacent to my spine are not in a radiation field and are not in an operative field, so they can't be taken out by radiation or therapy, radiotherapy or um, by surgery. So why do any operation? Was that consultative, Sean? Were you part of that process? Because sometimes, um, you know, I, I was in a consultative position, but many patients that we hear are just spoken to and told them this is what's happening and don't question. Yeah, it's really fascinating um, the, the way that people get in, conveyed information. Um, I was really lucky. I had a, um, I have an excellent surgeon, um, and she's a, she's a very good communicator. Um, and my liver surgeon was a really good communicator. So they're both my surgeons, although I haven't had any operations at all. Um, I've met um, both of them on several occasions as as we've progressed through treatment to discuss. And the option remains no treatment. Um, I think it's really ballsy for a surgeon to excuse me, you know, excuse the vernacular no. phrase. But I think it's really brave for a surgeon to not operate. The easiest thing for them to do actually is to operate. Um, but sometimes the best thing is to leave things alone. Um, and um, there's a range of reasons for that. You know, it delays um, access to chemotherapy, it weakens, it decreases your immune function, um, it can be quite an insult to the body. Um, and so sometimes, and I guess from a medical background, I'm really aware of why that happens. And so for me, that wasn't challenging, but I can certainly understand for some people they are like, oh, you know, people won't even operate on me. Um, but it's a, balance of, um, it's a balance of what's the best thing at the time. And you've got to make the best decision you can at the moment and move forwards. Um, so I think for a lot of people, if that isn't explained properly or there's no discussion around that, people feel might feel like they're not being given access to care when actually they are having a very appropriate and really good treatment with no treatment. But if it's explained in a, in a poor way or in a non-consultative way, um, patients may feel like they've been denied care. Um, and I think that's the biggest issue. It's about empowering, isn't it? Yes. Michelle, what advice would you provide to others who might find themselves in this situation? I think, first of all, keep calm um, and remember to adjust your focus to doing what you can actually do and what you can actually change because in this case it's your loved ones 
illness it's not yours so there's that great sense of helplessness you you can't feel the pain you can't relieve it you can't make them feel any better but the only thing you can do is maybe give them a hug and let them know you're there all the way and even that can be difficult sometimes because it's a lot of feelings to hold and a lot of grief in that moment but it's really just adjusting that focus really like Sean said from moment to moment I think we live in a world where we see a lot further ahead, plan a lot further ahead, and that's how we run our lives. But cancer really brings you back to what is really important, what is real, is your moment-to-moment of living. So try focusing on that, living in the moment, and focus on what you can do and change. I think it's also really important for people to go to their GPs, not because we're both GPs or we're plugging it, but because... They have such an important role in throughout your life. And they can actually provide a mental health care plan, which allows you access to a psychologist who may specialize in grief and know how to guide you through the process. I personally went to a psychologist and she has been really helpful in in the moments when I really need her. I think of a psychologist in these situations like a coach. They provide us with specific tools that help us to understand um, ourselves better and also to understand our interactions with other people. I think for Michelle, she had a lot of anticipatory grieving um, and I found that difficult because I'm like, hey, I'm not dead yet. I'm still here. Can you just stop crying every time you look at me? (laughs) Um, It's kind of difficult for me. So having it still that, happens. It still happens. It still happens. I'm not perfect. But um, but having that capacity to get some tips for Michelle about how to deal with that and seek support has been really helpful for us because it's you know it's a matter of just you know making sure that our interactions are positive for both of us as much as possible. It's not impo- it's not possible to be a hundred percent, but as as much as possible. Yep. And another thing is ask for help. Now, this is a very broad topic, and I think at the at the point of diagnosis, notifying your families and friends, everyone's like, oh, just call me if you need anything. Oh, send me, you know, let me know if you need anything. And most of the time, I think, one, I, I don't know what I need, mm-hmm. and it can take a bit of time to actually hash out what you need. So if you're going to ask for help, be explicit about my help. So if you have young children, say, hey, uh, could you please take my kids away for a few hours to the park or look after them for for an evening while I go and do something for myself to look after myself so I feel more like myself in this process. Because I think as time goes on, your spouse or your loved one with cancer, your life blends with them. And every decision that you make, um, how you go about your life, it just finds its way in there the cancer finds its way in there and sometimes you have to be very explicit about asking for help so you can have time to feel more like yourself absolutely i think cancer is a team game um certainly we wouldn't be able to do what we do without my family support i get massive support from my family from my mum my dad and my sister um from michelle from michelle's sister and from michelle's brother you know my team that's my family team and then i've got my physios my um, exercise physiologist, my psychologist, my acupuncturist, my oncologist, my surgeon. I've got this massive team. Um, and the family and the day-to-day caring aspect is enormous. They're part of the team. So see them as part of the team um, and give them, you know, little jobs and things to do. People, like, they do want to help. And the more specific you can be, the better, um, I find, because people then know what their role is in the team and they can feel part of the team. Well, there's nothing worse than wanting to be part of the team and even sometimes people feel excluded from the team. And that's just not something you wouldn't be thinking about. 
That's a great analogy. I love that. I love that idea of a team. Oh, and be easy on yourself because in this case you feel helpless and at times guilty and it's just all mixed in there. And I think if you're a carer for someone with cancer, go easy on yourself. No one expects you to do a perfect job. I think carers have a um, almost have a harder job than patients. Um, with patients, we've got a really well-defined role. It's easy to know what we've got to do. We turn up for chemo, we feel sick. You know, everyone gives us lots and lots of kudos for doing what we do. But carers don't get a lot of kudos for doing what they do. Um, and, and I think that um, uh, being a carer is a massive toll um, and it's a huge toll emotionally, physically, um, career-wise, all sorts of different things come into play. Um, even who you think of yourself as a person can can change as a carer. And I think that um, it's really important to recognise that carers need a lot of support um, and they deserve a lot of gratitude and recognition. I'm eternally grateful to everyone who's helped out with me um, and certainly has changed how I think about things. Whenever I get um, someone in with any kind of chronic disease, you know, be it diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease or anything, I think about their carer and I go, you know, how's your partner going? Or, you know, who looks after, you know, how, how's your brother going, you know? Like just ask those little simple questions. I think that's really fundamental um, in any disease process, but especially in cancer. Um, I think cancer will take as much as you let it take. It'll take everything from you. It'll take your life. It'll take your relationships. It can destroy everything. Um, so it's really important to set boundaries around what you're going to let cancer take from you. Um, and for carers, that's especially important. Don't let cancer take your whole life. You need to live your own life. Um, as a carer, it's really important to go away and take your time away from cancer so that you can feel normal. If that's what you need to do, go, you know, go for a surf or, you know, go for a trip away with your friends every, you know, couple of months. Make sure you take that time. Don't feel guilty about leaving cancer behind for a while. I think that's really fundamental. Sean, you've talked about your family as part of your carer's team. How did you approach your initial diagnosis with them? Yeah, look, it was pretty challenging for me. I mean, obviously, Michelle found out on the day, so that, that was the biggest, hardest one done. Um, my parents were actually living overseas at the time, um, and so that was a bit, of a, a bit of a challenging phone call. I waited until I had a little bit more information before I called them. Um, but... Um, but it was, um, yeah, that was a really hard phone call. So I just picked up the phone and said, hey, you know, um, I really need to talk to you guys. Um, and so they sort of suspected that something not so good was happening. Um, but then I basically had to tell them the situation and they packed up their whole lives overseas to move back to Australia that week um, to come and support me. I'm very, very lucky to have really supportive family. Um, and, and then shared it with close family um, over a period of about two weeks. I found that you've got to chip away at it. Um, don't do it all on one day. It's really emotionally it's emotional work. It's really hard. And you end up having the same conversation 25 times with other people crying on the phone. By the end of it, you get quite callous. You're like, yeah, well, so what? I mean, I'm the one with the disease. Why are you crying? But you've got to realise that you're breaking this over and over again. And while you've kind of got your little rope routine going, like, yeah, I know what seven questions you're going to ask. Let's just go through number three. Like, um, it become quite a lot of work. So one thing that one thing that my mum read on a, on a support group, which was really helpful, was delegating telling people. So I actually delegated to my mum to tell all of her brothers and sisters. She's got a lot of brothers and sisters and I've got a lot of cousins in New Zealand. And um, and so she took on the role of delegating to her to tell all those people. So those people felt like they'd had the information firsthand, um, but it wasn't from me so that I didn't have to tell my 30, literally 35 cousins um, one by one. Um, so I think that's really important tip is to delegate that some of that um, to someone you trust, obviously, you, Make sure it's either whether it's a friend or a family member. Um, 
And um, and yeah, so that, that that is quite a challenging thing, telling people. The second thing for me was about um, going public with it, if you like. So you can tell your friends and family. Some people will, won't want to tell anyone. Um, I know people certainly who've had trouble telling their children, their older children, that they have cancer. Some people that I know, um, and they, they find it really difficult. And they, you know, they might be six, 12 months into treatment and not tell their kids they've got cancer. And it can be really challenging for them to do that. Um, so it's different for everyone. Um, so one of the things that I battled with was working out whether or not to sort of go public. And I decided in the end that I would go public. And I, I set up a, um, an Instagram page um, for cancer updates. Um, so that I could compartmentalise my life when I didn't want to look at and think about cancer. Um, so I basically started an Instagram page that was specifically for updates about my cancer. And then anyone who wants to know about how I'm travelling with my treatment can just go look at that Instagram page. I can field questions about it on that page. Um, and in that way, it doesn't sort of bleed into my everyday life of 25,000 people asking how I'm going. Um, so I found that was really useful. Um, way of doing it is to have a compartmentalization. I can just switch that off or switch that on when I want to. So when I'm feeling strong, I can sort of log in and, and, and chat to people. And I find that's really useful because I've got a lot of really great support from the online community. You start finding all these other people with cancer and they become an online peer group. Um, but there are some problems with that as well. Like, you know, they start to die. And um, that can be really challenging. So when the people that you've got to know quite well online die, that's, that's you know, not very nice. So being able to switch it on and off, I think, is really important because some days you feel like dealing with it and some days you don't. I've just had, for example, um, three weeks of not turning my cancer Instagram on once because I just don't feel ready to look at it. You can often feel drained, can't you, yeah. from dealing with everyone else. So I think that's really sound advice. Did you tell your employer and, I, you know, are you working at the moment? Yeah, so I um, I told my employer pretty much the day I was diagnosed. I had told them I was, I was I actually had a week off, so I was um, I had my colonoscopy during the week off, and I, I basically rang them up on the afternoon of my colonoscopy and said, "Look, I can't come back to work on Monday. I've got a lot of important stuff I need to do. Um, my colonoscopy had some, you know, basically showed that I have, you know, pretty serious cancer." They were quite shocked, obviously, um, but they basically cleared my books. And then once I sort of had a bit more of a picture of what was going on, I told them that I wouldn't be coming back um, for at least a year. Um, so that year's up and I'm sort of thinking about coming back to work again now. Um, and the reason I gave myself a year is because I knew it was quite serious and I didn't know if I'd survive the year to start with. Um, so here I am, I've made it. That's great. Bravo. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and yeah, so I'm thinking about getting back into some work again now. Um, but that's its whole, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but, um, coming back to work after cancer and, and finding yourself again. But, um, but yeah, so I, I'm not currently working, no. But you had you had a great understanding employer that like they've been it's a community. I find the medical community has been so generous towards us. It's interesting you say that because others may not have the same experience. I, for example, was made redundant in the middle of chemotherapy. Oh, that's awful. But you know, again, as you're going through that, some organizations are not quite so fabulous so it's great to hear that you had such a positive experience can I touch on then the past 12 months for example genetic testing you obviously didn't have surgery but take us through in a quick snapshot um, around chemotherapy any targeted therapy what you've gone through in the last 12 months so I basically stepped my way through a whole bunch of different therapies. So first, the first sort of difficult thing to come through was like new cancer is inoperable and incurable. And I was told that pretty much in the first week. Um, so I rapidly sort of developed this viewpoint that this is a chronic disease that we need to manage. 
um, and like any chronic disease, you manage it with medication. Um, and so we um, sort of started down a process of, you know, going through stepwise through the current recommendations on chemotherapy. So the first one that I had was called Folfox, um, which is a um, combination of 5-fluorouracil and oxaloplatin. Um, you're nodding your head. It's an awful drug. <laughs> is that the one that gives you, you know, eight, nine years later, uh, neuropathy? That's correct. Yeah. So it has a, it has a few different funny effects. Um, you know, spasms and cramps and cold insensitivity and hiccups and hiccups and and, um, and and neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy. I've still got quite persistent peripheral neuropathy as well. Um, and I was on that for six months. Um, initially showed a brilliant response at eighty percent reduction initially, um, but the cancer came back and um, and and started to fail quite aggressively um, around about May. So about six months into treatment. Um, and that was the first time I ended up in the palliative care ward. I lost a lot of That's weight. July. So I ended up in hospital for a week and they did a, um, a nerve ablation and, and, and um, killed the nerve going to this very painful tumour. Um, and that was a, a fantastic treatment. Saved my life, basically. Um, after that, I went on to Fol Theory, um, which is 5-fluorouracil and irinotecan. And um, and uh, and had that for nearly for about four or five Avastin. months. Yeah, that was with a Avastin on the side. And... Um, um, and then that one failed, unfortunately. And I was in a similar situation over Christmas where I was rapidly losing weight and becoming very unwell. Um, and then I started on um, a newer medication, which was only released in um, December 2019, so around the time I was diagnosed with a pretty new drug, um, which is called Encarafenib, or the, the common name for it is Beacon. Um, that, that was the name of the trial it was released under. Um, and so Beacon is not currently available in Australia um, on the PBS. Um, but you can access it um, if you pay the price um, privately. Um, and so that's about $10,000 a month. Um, so we currently pay that for um, for treatment at the moment. And I've had really good, um, a very, very good response to that at the moment. I've managed to put on five kilos again and I've got my energy back and basically come back from the brink again. Um, so we'll see where we get to next. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a bit of a rocky road. Um, and um, But, you know, just clawing it on and... Um, and, uh, and just keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other and we'll work out where to next. I think the plan is to just try and hold on and see what's coming in the line because there are a lot more medications um, in, in development at the moment. And uh, if I can just manage to hold on as each one of those new ones come out, we'll just see how they go. Um, finally, um, because we've taken up quite a bit of your time, I'd like to give our audience just three quick snapshots of what you'd like them to take out. So from this podcast, what are the three um, takeouts you'd like someone going through what you're going through to take away? Oh, I think, I think you know what we're both going to say is the most important thing. Hit me. Go to your GP. <laughs> if you're worried, go to your GP. Your job as uh, the advocate for yourself is when something's wrong, you go find help. If your instinct tells you something's wrong, you trust it. And you go fight for yourself and find an answer. Your GP is your companion in this journey. And it's really important, no matter which point you are in your journey, that you get in touch with them and see what they can do to help you. I think genuinely all the GPs that I've spoken to and have touched on in the online community, they want to help. They know that colon cancer is on the rising young people. But currently, apart from lowering the age and also a broader education to the public and not just the medical profession that it can happen. And if you're not sure, these are the you know, simple signs to look for, um, having change in your bowel habits, blood in stool, mucus in stool, weird lumps or bumps in your tummy, and just feeling really tired. Those are all signs that you should go see your GP and have a chat to them 
about what to do next. And sometimes the first investigations will set up a whole chain of events that will change your life. You couldn't have said Bowel Cancer Australia's line for us any better than that, Michelle, I don't think. Sean, what would your your takeout be? The, one of the really important things is radical acceptance. Um, I think it's really important to just, um, uh, as a patient, this is from a patient perspective, be open to um, uncertainty. Um, and that's very, very difficult. Um, and it can be extremely difficult when it's a life and death matter, which is you know, often for many people what cancer diagnosis becomes. Um, not for everyone, but for many, and um, and so and so having that radical acceptance, I think, is a key take-home point. Is being able to say to yourself, "It's going to be okay, no matter what. This is my journey, and this is the path I need to walk." But Michelle and Sean, you are both wonderful inspirations from a patient perspective, but also as health practitioners. As I said earlier, you both need to be my GP. Um, we're in very safe hands having you as healthcare professionals. Um, and thank you so much for your time today. No worries, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.